If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This episode is brought to you by Bi. It's Wonder Water. What makes Bi so great? It's simple. From raspberry lemon lime by Sydney Sweeney to Zambia Bing cherry and Palavo pineapple mango. Bi has antioxidants, electrolytes, and no artificial sweeteners. So for flavorful hydration, choose Bi. It's Wonder Water. Learn more about Bi and discover all of the exotic, bold flavors at drinkbi.com. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. The world is currently pinning its hopes on the success of the new COVID-19 vaccines being rolled out. But can we draw any comfort from previous efforts to conquer lethal diseases? Gareth Williams, Emeritus Professor of Medicine at the University of Bristol, wrote a feature for the January issue of BBC History magazine, which discusses historical races to develop vaccines. That's the subject of today's podcast. He spoke to our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, about vaccines of the past, touching on everything from Edward Jenner's war on smallpox in the 18th century to two rival scientists' bitter battle to conquer polio in 1950s America. Okay, so um, Gareth, your feature in our January issue tells the story of the the race to develop vaccines to combat smallpox, rabies, TB and polio. Um, But before looking at these in more detail, I wonder if I could start by asking you if if you've been surprised by the speed with which a vaccine is being developed to combat COVID-19. I think one of the great success stories of the year is the speed with which vaccines have been developed against COVID-19. This was a virus which was essentially unknown a year ago. And we've gone from nowhere, we've gone from zero knowledge to understanding a great deal about the way that the virus behaves. Obviously, there's still a lot we don't know, uh, but its behaviour has been mapped, its 
genome has been characterized to the extent where we've been able to make a new and very imaginative kind of vaccine against it. So these remain absolutely miserable times, and there are lots of, I'm sure, bumpy bits of the road still ahead. But if just in terms of what's been achieved with the vaccine, it is an astonishing success story. Okay, so um, if I could ask you a very basic question. Um, technically, what is a vaccine and where does the word vaccination come from? Uh, the vaccine is a product that's administered to induce artificial immunity against a microbe, be that a, a bacterium or a virus or even parasites, even cancer cells now. So the trick is to find something that will stimulate the immune system without causing damage elsewhere. And typically a vaccine is an inactivated bit of a virus or a bacterium which is injected and which raises antibodies and also immune cells that are primed against whatever you've put in the vaccine. So you have an immune response that's raised against the component in the vaccine and the hope is that those antibodies and those immune cells will then wipe out the whole of the live organism, the bacterium or the virus, whenever it tries to invade the body in the future. And where the term vaccine came from, um, it actually goes back to Edward Jenner's cowpox vaccine. It wasn't one of Jenner's own inventions. He was a very imaginative man, but it was actually a man called Dunning, who was a friend of Jenner, who worked down in Plymouth, who came up with the term a few years after Jenner had published his famous inquiry into the causes and effects of the cowpox, which was effectively the first sort of master work about uh, the prospect of vaccination and indeed laying the uh, the foundations for all the vaccines that we have today. Now, in your feature, um, you start by taking the reader back to the late 18th century when, as you've just mentioned, Edward Jenner was famously developing a vaccine for smallpox. Um, just to put this in context, how significant a killer was smallpox? I mean, in terms of how lethal it was, how does it compare to, say, COVID-19? Uh, well, I'm afraid smallpox was off-scale compared with COVID-19. It was one of the most horrific scourges of humanity. Um, it was never one of the top killers. Uh, and even today, we have uh, things like malnutrition and malaria, which have a, you know, a similar kind of toll. But in its heyday, which lasted probably two and a half, three centuries, it was one of the great killers and mutilators. So across most of the world, you had roughly a one in three chance of meeting it. It was one of the great rivers of life that had to be crossed, if you like. And if you got it, then you had about a one in four chance on average of dying from it. So it was responsible for the deaths of about one in 12 um, people across most of the countries in the world. So it really was one of the one of one of the most feared of the diseases. The other things about it were that it tended to pick off kids, so most of its victims were under the age of five. So it had the reputation of being the the slayer of the young and innocent. And even if you had it and you survived, you weren't necessarily that lucky because about a third of the people who'd had smallpox and lived were left really badly scarred. And this was in some cases really hideous facial disfiguration. So. There are plenty of people on record who survived smallpox and then killed themselves rather than look in the mirror. Right, okay, so this is a, a, a really terrible disease. And, and what what tactics had, had doctors employed to, to combat uh, smallpox before uh, Edward Jenner came along? 
Well, the <laughs> the ways that doctors tried to tackle smallpox, uh, you could categorize it as the, the therapeutics of despair. So lots of things were tried, and looking back, many of these seem absolutely bizarre and even cruel. But the point is, if you put yourself back then, then you've got the choice of either trying something or doing nothing, and very likely watching somebody die a horrible death in front of you. So if you go back to 100 years before Jenna, then doctors were using leeches. They used leeches to treat pretty well everything. It did absolutely nothing, but it was a great medical ritual that people were very happy to pay for. Uh, There were drugs that gave you torrential diarrhea, other drugs that made you throw up. And again, they did nothing, although there's a great story about two of the senior doctors in London, really important people in the Royal College of Physicians, who actually fought a duel with swords on the steps of Gresham College to work out whether drugs that made you throw up or drugs that gave you diarrhea were the best treatment for smallpox, even though neither really worked. Um, The colour red was one of the things that was thought to be preventative and curative. So when one of the Austrian emperors was dying of smallpox, they actually sent a Stroud in Gloucestershire for three yards of heavy red English flannel, and they wrapped him up in it and he dropped dead pretty well on the spot. So it does rather suggest that the colour red wasn't that great after all. And if you wind forward beyond Jenner's day, then uh, you can go right up to the late 19th century, And leeches, amazingly, were still being used. There were still drugs to make you vomit as part of the treatment. There was dilute sulfuric acid mixed with lemonade. There were all sorts of crazy things. Um, The one thing that does stick out, actually, is the precursor of vaccination. And until I started reading about this subject as as a doctor, I I never specialised in infectious diseases or was particularly interested in the history of medicine. So all this was news to me. But I came across mention of this amazing process called variolation. Uh, And this sounds absolutely crazy, mad, bad and dangerous, all the above. But it actually worked. And variola is the Latin name for smallpox. It means speckled or spotted. And variolation means exactly that. It's giving a healthy child a small dose of real live smallpox in the hope that it won't kill them and will leave them protected against it. And we all think of Jenner as the great thinker and the great saviour. But in fact, if you take yourself back to probably the 17th century, possibly in China, right back to the 1200s, people had worked out that if you got smallpox and lived, then you were unlikely to catch it again. So that then opened the door for people to be really brave and actually give somebody artificial smallpox and see if it worked. And it did. And in fact, it turned into one of the great medical industries in uh, in England. Uh, there were sort of franchise variolation houses, a chain of them up and down the country. And in good hands, if you were variolated, you had probably a one in a hundred chance of dying of smallpox compared with one in four chance of waiting to catch it in the usual way. So to my mind, variolation is actually almost as astonishing as the whole story of vaccination itself. But could you tell us a little bit about Jenner's eureka moment? I mean, this this wasn't a guy who was um, uh, operating in a sophisticated medical environment in the heart of a great metropolis, was it? He was he was working as a doctor in rural Gloucestershire. So, you know, yeah, where did his great discovery come from? Well, <laughs> it depends which version of the story you believe. Um, Jenner certainly was a country doctor, and you can read 
his diary for a whole year. It's in the Welcome Rare book collection in London. And from that, you can see that he did function as a single-handed country doctor. Uh, He'd visit his patients on horseback. He did some heroic surgery on a kitchen table in a farm not too far from where I'm talking. And he did all the above. But he was not uh, a run-of-the-mill doctor. He'd been trained by an amazing man called John Hunter, who was surgeon extraordinary to His Majesty King George III up in London. And that's where Jenna served his medical apprenticeship. And Hunter left Jenna excited about the science behind medicine. And to my mind, without John Hunter being there and actually remaining in contact with Jenna, I don't think Jenna would have gone on to do the things that he did. So if you like, Jenna's mind was prepared for the scientific method. And he was on the lookout for things to be experimented with and to be exploited to treat disease. Now, the common version is that when he was a medical student in South Gloucestershire, probably 14 or 15 years old, because he did start medicine very young then, he's alleged to have met a milkmaid um, and smallpox had broken out nearby. And he said to the milkmaid, um, you need to take care and perhaps you should be variolated, given this artificial smallpox, because that was around by then. Uh, And she's supposed to have said to him, you don't need to worry about me, Gov, because I've had cowpox and that means that I can never catch smallpox. And this would have been news to Jenna because cowpox was not mentioned anywhere, even as a disease and certainly not as a preventative against smallpox. So if that version of the story is true, then Jenna parked that knowledge actually for nearly 40 years, well over 30 years. Uh, And then in his late 40s, he began to do experiments with, um, with cowpox. First of all, he found people who'd had cowpox Uh, because they worked with cows, and it was easily recognisable. And he discovered that a lot of these people had then been exposed to smallpox, but had somehow not managed to catch it. So he rounded up lots of case histories like that. And then in 1796, he took the very bold step of actually giving the eight-year-old son of his gardener, James Phipps, uh, a little dose of cowpox um, to see if that would protect him against smallpox. And if you like, the the eureka moment really was when he gave the child smallpox a few weeks later to see if he would get it or not. And today we would think, you cannot do that. (laughs) (laughs) Smallpox is a killer or mutilate quite. You can't do that. But of course, the the least controversial bit of what he did, if you like, was actually giving him smallpox because that was just variolation, standard medical procedure. And when he did that, that, nothing happened. Normally, when you were variolated, you'd get a, a hundred blisters of smallpox breaking out. You'd be ill for a few days, then you'd get better. And before long, you were back to normal. And the point about this eureka moment was that absolutely nothing happened. So this was Jenna's true evidence that giving this child artificial cowpox, or cowpox artificially, was able to protect him against smallpox. So that's the that bit is true. We know that because that's written down. But whether... Jenna got the idea from a milkmaid in his early teens is something that people have argued about. My own personal view is that it probably did not happen. Uh, the story comes from a man called John Barron, who was a great, he was one of Jenna's pupils, and he was also a great admirer of Jenna, and wrote Jenna's biography after Jenna died. Um, and that's where the story really first emerged. My hunch is that uh, John Barron made it up because the alternative is that Jenna got the idea from 
a medical colleague who, who was a good friend of his, who'd already been experimenting with cowpox, and it wouldn't have put Jenner in such a good light. He would not have been the great genius discoverer. So what did the wider medical world, the medical establishment, initially make of, of, of his discovery? Well, it was interesting. When the inquiry came out, um, it wasn't published as a proper peer-reviewed medical article. Uh, in fact, Jenner was already a fellow of the Royal Society uh, for working out how the baby cuckoo chick got rid of everything else in the nest that the mother cuckoo had parasitized. And this sounds pretty trivial, but actually it's something that the, the, the great ancient scientists, the Greeks, the Romans, puzzled over, and it was one of the great zoological enigmas of the day. Uh, and Jenna staked out nests of birds that had been parasitized by cuckoos and reported exactly how the baby cuckoo chick did it. So when Jenna wrote up his findings, including the cowpox inoculation, the cowpoxing, what we now call vaccination, he sent the paper to the Royal Society and they rejected it. Can you imagine? One of the great landmark publications in the history of medicine, the history of science, and the Royal Society, of which he's already a fellow, actually turned the thing down. And it now seems that the guy who refereed it for the Royal Society had a grudge against Jenner and was determined to do him down. So Jenner published his inquiry, this report of all the cases of naturally occurring and artificially induced cowpox protected against smallpox. He published that himself. So one of these great pinnacle papers, if you like, in the history of science is actually a piece of vanity publishing, which was never peer-reviewed. Uh, when it came out, people saw immediately that it was much better than variolation and, and that it would work. And it became a bestseller and the practice spread very rapidly around England, then to Europe. Uh, there were people who were particularly keen on it in Switzerland and France. Uh, North America picked it up very, very rapidly. And it was around the world literally within a few years. So most people embraced the idea and saw the excitement and the potential. But at the same time, in the same way you get, you know, every reaction has an equal and opposite reaction, you had the reaction of the anti-vaccination movement. And it kicked in very soon after Jenner's inquiry was published. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about that because... Um... Vaccine reticence and the attendant conspiracy theories have, have commanded an, an enormous amount of news coverage over the past six months. But as you just pointed out, they're not new to COVID-19, are they? I mean, was Jenner exposed to quite a lot of this? Um, Jenner was during his lifetime. Um, uh, it was actually after he died that the anti-vaccination movement really picked up um, that latter revival, if you like, or resurgence of interest in anti-vaccination in England was really partly the fault of the Vaccination Acts, which were brought in in the 1840s, so about 15, 20 years after Jenner died. Uh, and they made vaccination, first of all, desirable and then compulsory. And it was making it compulsory that really caused a lot of the damage. So people lost trust in the government and the way in which they were trying to enforce vaccination. Again, there are lessons there for the way that uh, vaccination is going to be handled in the current crisis. Um, if you go right back to the beginning, then when the inquiry came out, um, people took some people took against it straight away. Uh, the first objections were actually religious. And the view was that injecting matter from 
animals, in other words, cowpox from a cow ultimately, into a human was bestial. And it was also against the scriptures. If uh, God had decided that you were going to die next Thursday from smallpox, then man has got no right to stand in the way of that divine instruction. So there were lots of religious objections. Uh, Doctors, many doctors actually took against vaccination uh, for two reasons. One was that they saw their income being threatened by this new discovery. And whereas variolators were making big, big money out of giving smallpox to prevent smallpox, along comes Jenner and he publishes this thing. Anybody who bought a copy of the inquiry could then set themselves up as vaccinators. So Jenner was into open access of medical information, as we call it today. And unlike doctors of the time, he did not want to keep this secret. He wanted as many people as possible around the planet to benefit from it. So there were lots of jealous, threatened doctors who spread false information about vaccines. There were also a few who were concerned about its genuine risks. And one of the great maxims of medicine, if you like, is that if something works, if it does any benefit, then it will do some harm. And I hope in bringing forward any new medical treatment is that the, the risk-benefit ratio is always good. In other words, its, its benefits will far outweigh its risks. In the case of uh, Jenner's vaccine, um, it was billed as something that could spread blood poisoning, syphilis, cancer, diabetes, madness, all sorts of things, a long, long list. And that did frighten people. There was even a rumour that if your child was vaccinated, then your child could turn into a cow. And there was an astonishing series of articles published in medical journals by people with medical degrees. They usually published under pseudonyms. But these were accompanied by pictures of children beginning to grow horns and looking like cattle. It's quite quite amazing. But people did believe that. The problem was that there was a grain of truth in that. And initially, when cowpox was collected, it was essentially a farmyard procedure. So all the bacteria that normally live on the cow's udders got injected as well as the cowpox. So there were plenty of cases of people getting blood poisoning and even dying from it. And the other thing is it could actually spread a form of syphilis, which affected newborn babies. And when people went to vaccinate a community, they would, first of all, vaccinate the youngest child on the grounds that it would be innocent and wouldn't have met any other illnesses. And back then, um, it was possible for the child to have been infected in the uterus by its mother who had syphilis. And if that first child had syphilis, then when the vaccination team went back 10 days later to collect the vaccine fluid from the vaccination blister on that child, that fluid would not only contain cowpox, it would also contain the bacterium that caused syphilis. And so there were hazards there that were genuine. Uh, Overall, the risk of harm was much, much less than the risk, than the benefit, than the than the um, the protection the vaccine would bring. But one of the problems with that is that from the start, people who were in favour of vaccination really plugged the benefits and ignored the harm that was done. And this was where the erosion of trust in vaccines and doctors really originated. So you had plenty of important doctors denying, for example, the possibility that uh, cowpox vaccination could spread syphilis even when they knew damn well that it could. So that proved counterproductive, I guess, in the, in the long run. Very, very much so. And again, if you look at the, the various threads of the anti-vaccination argument today, you've got a 
huge spectrum from people with genuine concerns about the safety of vaccines, and I, I totally sympathise with them. Um, it needs to be explained clearly and honestly what the benefits and what the risks are, and then armed with that information, people can then work out whether they it's for them or not. Uh, at the other extreme, you've got people who are just making money out of people's fears and anxieties and indecision. And in the midst of all that lot, you've got the need to be for doctors and government and health, public health people to be absolutely honest about the risks and benefits, and they haven't always been in the past. So given what you said a few minutes ago, would you uh, counsel against making uh, vaccination mandatory? I think it could be very dangerous. I, I think there are instances where it makes public health sense for people to be vaccinated. For example, if you are a frontline healthcare worker working in a care home, then I think it is irresponsible not to be vaccinated. Whether you then make that mandatory for those professions to be covered by vaccination is another matter that's a matter for politicians, really. Uh, but my own view is that I, I've known the risks of COVID and they are in very, very stark uh, evidence at the moment. I, I think it does not make sense for people who are not protected by vaccines, um, to the best of our knowledge, to be working in those settings because they could easily put themselves and the people they're looking after at risk. Uh, the the counter-argument, of course, is that we don't yet know how good the vaccines are. The trials look very promising, uh, but there are plenty of examples in the history of vaccines where uh, the final outcome in real life, if you like, has not quite matched the performance in clinical trials. That's the same for many drugs. Uh, all the signs are that we can be optimistic, but the, the truth is at the moment we don't know. So I think any any move to make vaccination mandatory in particular professions will we'll have to wait until we have more solid evidence. My own view is that that evidence will come and again, that will then be a difficult decision. We, we know that in the past, when people tried to make vaccination compulsory, it has not gone well. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And they, they were described very, very uncharitably by David Ashinsky, who's a great American historian of science and medicine. He said they were a pair of real bastards in the way that they behaved to each other. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. 
It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Now, returning to Jenner, um, as you point out in your feature, he, he, he became something of a superstar, didn't he, in, in his own time? I mean, there's some great anecdotes you uh, you give in the feature, um, one involving uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. I, I wonder if you just you could elaborate on that just a little bit, please. Well, this this was a time when uh, France and England were repeatedly at war. And during one of these conflicts, um, a couple of English doctors were caught on the wrong side of the conflict. They were caught in France trying to get back to England. They were arrested and thrown into prison. And there was a lot of anxiety. We had to try and get these people who were innocent victims, if you like, uh, repatriated to England. And nothing happened until Jenner wrote personally to Napoleon. (laughs) This is true. Uh, And asked him to release the two doctors, and they were released. And Napoleon said, uh, by way of excuse, I can refuse this man nothing. And at the time, the uh, the French armies and navies were being uh, vaccinated because Napoleon was a great believer in the protective power of vaccination. And uh, around that time as well, they held a celebratory dinner to honour Jenner in, in France. Uh, Jenner did not go, but they held the dinner anyway, uh, in France, in Paris, and they put a great big portrait of Jenner at the head of the table. In terms of his reputation today, I mean, where, where do you think he stands in the in the pantheon of, of of great medical practitioners? I mean, do you think we'd do enough to celebrate his achievements in the twenty first century? I think that's a really good question. I I don't think we do actually. Um, Jenner is right up there, even if he didn't invent vaccination. Again, there's very good evidence that people had used cowpox to protect against smallpox and had even done the experiment with variolation to prove that it did actually work. Um, And that had been done before Jenner published his inquiry. But the thing about Jenner is that whereas the others either didn't pursue it or didn't really believe in it, didn't see the point of it, Jenner did. And he he had quite a few flaws. You know, he was he's not exactly a a finisher, completed kind of guy. He left lots of experiments un, 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 unfinished. But he did have um, conviction and strength of personality, and he's the man that actually made vaccination happen. You know, he persuaded his disciples that this was something really worth going for, and collectively they pushed it into mainstream medicine. And without him, it, it would have been invented or discovered in the end anyway, but the point is that it came in at that time thanks to him. So my own view is, yes, he should be up there with the with the great. And in fact, if you go to the Welcome building in London, you'll discover that his name is above your head as you go up the, the stairs to the rare book gallery where his diary is, uh, beside John Hunter and Pasteur and all the other real greats. So I, I think he deserves to be there in the pantheon, as you say. Do we take him seriously enough? No, we don't. And... The reason for that is interesting. Uh, about five miles up the road from where I'm recording this is the Edward Jenner Museum in Berkeley. 
Uh, it's where he lived, where he did his experiments, where he died. He's buried next door in the church. And uh, it's a small provincial museum. It doesn't get any government funding. It relies on small grants from various sources and people going through the door. And, of course, nobody's going through the door at the moment. So this this great place, and it's a real gem. It's a wonderful house. It's got character. It's a window into the age of scientific enlightenment, as well as the place where Jenna did all this stuff. And it might not survive the COVID epidemic, so that would be ever so tragic, really. Sure. Okay, I'd like to, um, if I can, fast forward uh, 150 years or so to the fight against another terrible infectious disease, polio. Um, I mean, this is something that many of our readers uh, might remember. And you write in your feature that fear of polio polio had a significant impact on the uh, the psyche of parents across Europe and America. So I just wanted to ask, how lethal was was this disease and how corrosive was that fear? Well, they're they're two quite distinct questions with with an interesting link, if you like. the vast majority of people who caught polio didn't know they had it. So when there was a polio outbreak, you would, ha- you would know that it was around because uh, people, mostly youngsters, would be paralysed. They'd get a, a flaccid paralysis, so floppy paralysis of one or more limbs or sometimes every muscle from the neck down. Um, what you did not see, and they did not know until they were able to uh, do antibody testing, as we're doing now, for COVID to see who's actually met the virus what they didn't know was that there were about 95% of people who showed very little in the way of symptoms. And the polio virus is a, a gut virus that normally just goes straight through the gut, hangs around for a few weeks, um, induces immunity against itself. So you don't tend to get the same strain of polio twice. Um, and it might only manifest itself by a bit of the temperature, a bit of diarrhea, pains in the back, things like that. So it was only a few unlucky percent who got any signs of central nervous system involvement at all, and really just a couple of percent who got significant paralysis. So you could argue that it was uh, a very scary uh, but largely invisible infection. Uh, and in fact, to that extent, it, you know, the, the breakdown between uh, uh, asymptomatic cases and real clinical harm Uh, is quite reminiscent of what we're understanding about COVID at the moment. In the case of polio, the number of asymptomatic people was even larger. So you've got this disease which uh, can be very prevalent in times of an outbreak. Most people don't know that they've got it, but then you've got this great burden of disability and death as well, because people could die from muscular paralysis, obviously, um, whenever an outbreak was there. So how does that translate into... A fear which was, as you say, absolutely rampant. And it was largest, the greatest fear, I think, was actually in North America. And this was partly because when uh, polio first declared itself as as an epidemic disease, it was in New York, so the very heart of America, in the summer of 1916. Uh, And this was a catastrophe. It was uh, a huge outbreak. There were thousands of people who died and were paralysed. And the medical public health authorities could do nothing to stop it. And before that, for reasons we don't fully understand, polio had been a rather rare small print thing which just caused localised outcrops and then melted away again. So something about its behaviour changed at the beginning of the 20th century. 
But the point is, after that, America was left uh, fearful of the polio season every summer, because polio was like COVID. COVID is with us in the winter and the spring. Polio was there actually during the summer months. So at the start of every polio summer season, uh, the wealthy would desert the big cities and they'd head off to the mountains or the seaside in the hope of avoiding polio. And uh, people would effectively lock themselves down as we're doing now. Uh, so what's the link between the two? Well, it's partly that fear of that was residual, if you like, from the first bad outbreak in 1916. But the other thing coming through in the 1930s and 1940s was a fundraising campaign run by President Roosevelt to defeat polio. And this was where ultimately the polio vaccine came from. And this was called the March of Dimes. And it was a fundraising thing which all Americans were encouraged to dig into their pockets, pull out the the 10 cent, the dime pieces and stick them in an envelope addressed to the president, the White House, and they would take care of the rest. And it was one of the most successful fundraising enterprises ever in the history of medicine, actually in the history of science for public fundraising. And it did a huge amount of good in that it produced the vaccines that have defeated polio effectively. But it also helped to generate and propagate that fear and the early 1950s, polio was second only to the risk, the threat of nuclear annihilation and the things that kept Americans awake at night. Wow. What really interested me about this story was uh, how the race to find the vaccine was kind of supercharged by an intense rivalry between two scientists. <laughs> and, um, can, you, can, can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Well, there were actually three scientists. Oh, right, there was a man called... Yeah, well, no, no. It, it, again, it didn't really get a mention in the piece because it was, it was a bit too... It's another layer of complexity. Uh, the two that we know about are Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin. Uh, and these two, they were both top-class scientists. Uh, Sabin is the one who devised the vaccine that came in first. This was the so-called killed uh, polio virus. I mean, viruses aren't alive. They, they only can survive at all by being inside your cells. So they don't live in their own right. But you you take a virus which is competent and able to replicate, and you can kill it in various ways. And Salk killed it by pickling it in formalin, which is embalming fluid. Um, Albert Sabin used a live virus, which he attenuated, he made weak. And that was a term that Louis Pasteur first came up with when he was uh, discovering the, the rabies vaccine. So he had, uh, Sabin attenuated his polio vaccine virus by putting it into the brains and other organs of various laboratory animals. So they both sound bizarre processes. Um, Salk got there first, and his vaccine was trialled in nearly 2 million kids in America and Canada and Scandinavia in 1954. It was shown when all the data were crunched uh, months later that it worked and was safe and it was brought into wide-scale use in, the, in America in 1955. And it did very well. There were problems with it, but it's, um, it's still viewed as one of the safest vaccines. Sabin's vaccine came in uh, a few years later, and because it was a live virus, it didn't need to be injected. People were happier to have it. Again, this is probably going to be an issue with the COVID vaccine now. Um, because it was a, a live but attenuated virus, it didn't cause paralysis um, it induced better immunity because it behaved more like the real thing. So those two vaccines together have effectively conquered the polio virus. Um, 
these two men were very bright, but they hated each other's guts. And if one was in a room and the other one wandered in, then one of them would leave. (laughs) (laughs) And they they were described very, very uncharitably by David Ashinsky, a great American historian of science and medicine. He said they were a pair of real bastards in the way that they behaved to each other. And as an example, um, the Salk vaccine, the first one to come in, hit a production problem in a small pharmaceutical company in California, which managed to contaminate, would you believe, the polio vaccine with live paralyzing polio virus. So there was an outbreak of paralytic polio as a result of which some kids and their parents died. And this was a catastrophe. So in the middle of all this, which could easily have derailed the whole polio vaccination thing, which is just gaining momentum, you have a letter from Sabin de Salk, love and kisses from Albert saying, I told you this would happen. And he went around, Sabin went around all the big American infectious disease pediatric meetings telling people that he always knew that Salk was a kitchen chemist, his lousy vaccine would never work and look what's happened, I've been proven right. And the irony is that Sabin's vaccine is great, but it's got a problem. And the problem is that this live virus can occasionally mutate back into a form that can actually cause paralysis. And this is the reason that um, in the remaining campaign to stamp out polio, both the vaccines are being used. And at the moment, there are actually more cases of polio caused by the mutation of the Sabin live virus, if you like, circulating vaccine-derived polio, than there are of the few remaining wild type, the original polio viruses out there. I mean, to what extent is similar rivalries, uh, this time between nations, accelerated the development of the vaccines for COVID-19? That's that's a good question. I, I think probably rather little because people have got the teams uh, already had strategies, broad strategies in place. So, for example, the Oxford group, you know, they, as I understand it, the process that they've used is something that they have had not quite sitting on ice but waiting to go. And if, if you look back in the literature, you'll see that this pandemic was actually predicted with shocking accuracy by, by, by people five, ten years ago, uh, including a... a a bad coronavirus, you know, that was one of the predicted scenarios. So in some ways, this has caught a lot of, it's certainly caught politicians by surprise. I mean, the way that it's been handled, I'm sure will be picked over in years to come, but the people who have been involved in decision-making have not covered themselves in glory with their ability to assimilate information from experts and react accordingly. Uh, In terms of the vaccine development, um, again, there are about 100 at least, which are in development around the world at the moment. And it's all proof that there are several ways of skinning a cat. Um, people have got these wonderful RNA-based uh, vaccines, so inducing the body's own cells to make the spike protein, the other things which the antibodies latch onto on the coronavirus, um, and then more conventional approaches as well with bits of the coronavirus which are injected in a form that should raise antibodies but won't cause harm to the host. So in terms of competition, uh, I think that the various vaccine development groups around the world already had their broad strategies in place. And although they could not identify what was going to happen, they had the basic machinery already lined up to develop their particular kind of vaccine. 
And what do you think Edward Jenner would make of uh, the development of the COVID-19 vaccines? I mean, how much has the practice of producing a vaccine evolved since his day? It's vastly different. I mean, Jenner would not even recognise viruses. You know, when when Jenner was uh, developing his cowpox vaccine, he did actually use the word virus, but virus was a just a Latin word meaning slime or unpleasantness or danger in a very figurative sense. So at at that time, germ theory hadn't really been developed. People still believed in miasma, which was bad air. So diseases like smallpox were spread by uh, sort of ether, things drifting in the air. There was no notion that there was an infectious agent that was too small to see. Uh, let alone uh, a virus which is too small to see even with a with a conventional light microscope. So Jenner, I think, would have been um, again. He, you know, he was he had a very agile mind. It was slightly defocused at times, but I think he would have been absolutely fascinated uh, by the disease process and by the way that we've tried to respond to it. Gareth, thanks so much for that. That was really interesting. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Pleasure. That was Gareth Williams. You can read his feature on the race for vaccines in the January issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes features on the Battle of Sicily, Bonnie Prince Charlie and Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when Rosie Whitehouse will be discussing a group of Holocaust survivors' journey to Palestine. 